Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What is the purpose of the law in Galatians and how does it relate to Abraham's faith in God's instruction? What is the connection between the law of Moses and the crucifixion of Jesus? How and why does the Torah illustrate Abraham's wickedness while also insisting on his centrality? Does the law contradict faith? If the works of the law cannot attain righteousness before God, what is the point of the law? Richard and I discuss Galatians chapter 3. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 96 of the Bible as Literature podcast, You Foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? You saw the crucifixion of Jesus. You saw him shamed. And of one thing you can be certain... The man died. In the gospel, everyone saw him die. But it's not just that Jesus died. He was publicly portrayed as having been shamed and been persecuted through a shameful death. And the fact that he was condemned by both Jew and Gentile, by Gentile law, by Jewish law, that he was rejected by everyone, this is in contrast to Peter and therefore those who are following Peter who are concerned about, oh, am I following the law right or not? Are you trying to keep yourself pure or are you trying to take what you have and offer it to those who are in need? Because you are trying to prove that you can be a good, righteous, religious person, what you are doing is saying, oh yeah, 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 I get it. Jesus was shamed on the cross but I would like to boast about my life. I would like to boast in the flesh, which means to boast in something worldly that is passing away. What are you bragging about when Jesus himself gave it all away because his reference was something permanent? That's why they're fools. They're trading in the kingdom for bragging rights at the local synagogue. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And of course, the Spirit pertains to things that do not die. It's the opposite of the flesh. It's the teaching that animates them. It's the Word of God that animates them that is the producer of their actions. So did you receive the Spirit of God by hearing his teaching and trusting in it? Or by flexing your muscles. That's what he's asking in verse 2. And by doing the right thing, so-called, in your mind. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Meaning, I came and I taught you. You heard the instruction. You, like the pillars, made an effort to pretend that you trusted in that teaching. And now you're flexing your muscles? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Meaning, was it a waste of time that you went through all of this? 
Was it a waste of time, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did Jesus accomplish the will of the Father by coming down from the cross or by listening to his dad? Because hearing with faith means you listen to the Father of Jesus and obey. And the word, if we go back to verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, the word was taught to you about how you yourself are a sinner and are in need of God's grace. Now you're saying, okay, as long as I do these things, wait a second, doing those things are works of the flesh. They are no longer following the law that was given to you, the law that said you're a sinner and incapable of doing anything by yourself. You're contradicting yourself. You're contradicting the very word that you said amen to. Was this in vain? Did I teach you for no reason? Because I told you you're a sinner, incapable of doing good, and now you're going off trying to do good. I don't understand what happened. And so then the thing that he brings to you is Christ crucified, the one who is humiliated, who is the opposite of the fireworks you're hoping for. He's the anti-fireworks. He's the one who everyone wants to look away from. And this is the one that was taught to you. This is what was preached to you. Even so, Abraham, it says here, Abraham believed God. Read that he trusted God. Now, before I continue, I want to remind you of how wicked Abraham was. This Abraham was willing to betray his wife to the foreign kings in order to save his own neck and offer her up so that she could have relations with other people in order to cover for Abraham. When Sarah was unable to have children, instead of trusting in God's will, Abraham schemed with Sarah to have a child through Hagar. And then when the child was born, Ishmael, they abused and mistreated Hagar, and God came to her aid. There are examples upon examples of how Abraham was not a correct person. God, despite his character flaws and his imperfection, allowed Abraham to speak in God's presence. And Abraham was presumptuous and tried to defend Sodom and argue with God because he didn't trust God's judgment against Sodom. People hear this story and they think, oh, Abraham was so kind and merciful. No, Abraham was self-righteous. If God wants to crush someone, it's none of your business. So he confuses God's grace toward him as entitlement, which is the sin that is being addressed by Paul here. But this is the Abraham we're talking about. Despite how wicked he was, in the end, he trusted God. And this trust, meaning the trust in the instruction, was reckoned to him as righteousness. He did not earn it. It was the gift of God's mercy, which is the flip side of his judgment, that may fall upon those by God's fiat who trust in his instruction. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Because if you want to flex your muscles and prove that you're a good Jew, then you're going to be what Abraham was before he trusted. Someone who abuses women, who thumbs his nose at God, and who commits acts of cruelty towards people in his household. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all nations will be blessed in you. The gospel that was preached 
beforehand, and I think this is interesting, the gospel that was preached beforehand, because we think of the gospel as something that came from Jesus Christ. The gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand, and it was all the nations will be blessed in you because of what Abraham did. And why is that? Because Abraham was an example to show that God is the only one who provides the blessing, that God alone decides how he provides the blessing. You are not the ones deserving of God's blessing, but God out of grace gave you his blessing. And that's what is being taught here over and over again. Jesus did not deserve the blessing according to any human standard, both the Jewish standard and the Roman standard, the Gentile standard. Jesus was deserving of a curse, not of a blessing. Yet God superseded human law in order to give the blessing. And that's the point. He superseded any kind of morality to give Abraham the blessing. It's always God who overcomes any limitations of human law by doing what he wants. God is the judge, and in his court he can declare you righteous or unrighteous. The point is not your deeds. The point is the judgment. It is in his hands. So if he declares that Abraham is righteous, a precedent has been set. Those who trust, those who are of faith, those who trust in God's law are blessed together with Abraham the believer, the one who trusted. That's how he becomes your father. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And the important point here about this quote from Deuteronomy is that anyone reading Deuteronomy can find ways in which they've fallen short. Deuteronomy crucifies the addressee because there's no way you can keep all of the ordinances of God in Deuteronomy. And at the end of all the curses that are listed, ultimately the curse of the law is death. No matter what you do, if you miss the mark, you're to be executed. And this goes against the way that human beings think because they think in relative terms. Well, at least I'm doing these things. Okay, well, you're doing these five things, but the other 600 you're not doing. Well, at least I'm doing these 10 things and my neighbor is only doing eight things, which means that I'm better off than he is. You know, we're always looking for these ways to measure in a different way. And Paul is confronting the reader by saying, look, if you don't do all of them, you're just as cursed. The guy who does 10 is just as cursed as a guy who does 100 when there's 600 in view here. No matter how you try to figure out, okay, who am I going to sit with? Am I going to sit with Gentiles or not? The actual question is, okay, that's one. What about everything else? If you look at the whole scheme of things, you're falling short. And that's the point is to show not what you are doing. Okay, well, at least I did six today. If I get to seven tomorrow, I'll be better. Then I'll get to eight the next day. And we'll have this idea of progress. And eventually I'll get there. No, it's fail, 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 fail. I got bad news for you, Chrysostom explains. Whether you come at the first hour, the ninth hour, or the eleventh hour, the reaction of the host of the feast is the same. This verse is bad news for people who are good students because they think because they did their homework and they got good grades that somehow they're better off than the others. But it's not true. Not in terms of what matters, and that's the key. It's all a question of what matters. You have a teacher who at the end of the semester says, all right, never mind, guys. Everyone's going to get an A. The people who work their tail off all semester to get an A are going to be really angry 
because they worked really hard. And even the people who got a B plus are going to be angry because the people who got Fs got As. Well, why did I work to get the B plus? It's not like when Abraham went to sacrifice his son to demonstrate finally that he did trust God's instruction in the end. It's not like when God said, don't kill your son. Abraham said, oh darn, now I can't prove myself. Abraham finally realized that he is just at the mercy of God's will. Sacrifice Isaac? Don't sacrifice Isaac. It's immaterial. God's going to decide my fate. God's going to decide what I receive and I don't receive. There's nothing I can do. That's the key point. And Abraham's wickedness, as in the case of the wickedness of numerous biblical characters, is given in the narrative to illustrate this point. Because the person who got A's in school because they worked hard and did their homework and studied hard and believes they deserve a better job than some poor person working at McDonald's, that person, if they actually read Genesis is going to despise Abraham's blessing because Abraham didn't deserve it. Look how Abraham lived. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. Again, by trusting in God's instruction. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. I need to explain something here because the classic trap of western theology is to say well how can you say it's faith in the law and then the teaching father mark when verse 12 says that the law is not of faith because the law is a character in the torah and until you understand this you will never understand scripture it is part of a story as you said last week richard the torah which is a collection of narratives in five scrolls tells a story that exposes humanity's shame. And within that narrative, there are laws that are inscribed that apply to the characters in the story that expose their shame. You have to put your trust in the five scrolls and what is being taught. It's like someone talking about the New Testament and saying, Father Mark, you're saying we're supposed to trust in the gospel. Correct. Okay, well, I want to act like the Pharisee. He's in the gospel, isn't he? You see how they misuse everything and twist it. Paul is not arguing against following the Old Testament. He's saying you don't understand the Old Testament. It's a very different statement. Trusting in Scripture means that you have to be convicted of your own shortcoming. It's both ways, like you say, Father. It's saying that here are all the things you have to do. By the way, nobody does them. Torah says both, you need to do these things, but Torah also says you aren't doing all of these things. And both sides need to be understood. And you need to have faith that also in that same Torah is the story of those who did not fulfill all the law, yet because of God's grace were lifted up anyway and were preserved. And this is, again, going back to the one who was publicly crucified. He did not live up to the human law yet God took care of him. And this is what has to be understood. If you live, your life is because of the faith that only God provides for you. If you believe that you live according to your deeds and what you're able to accomplish, then you will understand by the same narrative that it won't get you anywhere. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Again, quoting Deuteronomy. 
in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus Christ, who we'll hear later, comes to us through the line of Isaac, the only patriarch who from the beginning to the end placed all his trust in the God of Abraham. Jesus Christ placed all his trust in the God of Abraham, and as such was at the mercy of the law in the story of the five scrolls. He fully submitted and pursued everything to its end as instructed by God, and it led to his death. He bore the shame so that you would realize your own nakedness and change the way you live. What more do you need than that? This is the question he's posing. He allowed himself to be cursed because all of us who think that we have to be perfect in order to get God's favor need to be proven wrong. He needs to prove the point that those who are cursed by the law are capable of receiving the grace of God. You don't have to be pure before God will pay attention to you, before God will give you a blessing. And so from Abraham to Jesus, those who were improper, who were cursed by the law because of their actions that went against the law, they were shown favor by God. And this is what Christ has to show to all those who currently reside outside of the law and therefore cursed by the law that yes you have an opportunity for God's grace if God so chooses but on the basis of what God chooses not what you choose to do or not do only the dead are perfect this is the point of Deuteronomy so if you're still breathing there's a problem with you and the cross is a shortcut it provides to you the perspective and wisdom of death while you're still breathing Now, that wisdom can't make you perfect because you're still breathing. But since you've received that wisdom through the shame of the cross, why not take that gift and skip ahead and start acting like someone who understands what's going on? Instead, you still want to go back and retrace the steps to your own persecution because you still believe you can do better than Jesus? This is the thing. This is why Paul is frustrated with both the Jews and the Gentiles. Because now Jesus has given you this opportunity and you're casting it aside and trying to redo the whole thing yourself, which you can't anyways. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, when it has yet been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Everybody knows that when you make a will, it's very important after the person dies that you don't change the will. When you break the will, you break relationships. You alienate siblings, you alienate friends, you bring turmoil to the family. Because once it's written and ratified, it's a codified will. And even if it's controversial, if you allow the will to stand, your dispute is with the text of the will. It's not with each other. That's the function of law. Better to be angry at the Bible than angry at your neighbor. It's also illegal to change that document. The law that makes that document have value also says that you're not allowed to change any letter of that document. It has to stand as it is. Now, the relations that Paul is dealing with in Galatians are the relations between Jew and Gentile. And the pillars are breaking God's will, which was ratified. And in breaking God's will, they're causing a division in God's family between Jews and non-Jews. 
That's the point of this reference. You can't mess with the text. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So the one who is the posterity of Abraham's faith, which means that he's the son of God, because ultimately it's not the zera'ah of Abraham, it's the zera'ah of God's instruction, which supplants Abraham's seed, humanly speaking. So you have Jesus Christ, who is now the seed, singular, of Abraham's faith. Not all the rest of you. Just because you're a Jew, it doesn't mean that you're a child of Abraham. That's the point he's making. Because if you claim that you're a child of Abraham because you're a Jew, we're talking about biology again. We're not talking about the seed that is produced by trusting in God's instruction. This is like in Matthew chapter 1, where the kinship between Jesus and Abraham is not the bloodline. The bloodline stops at Joseph. Isaac was born when Abraham and Sarah were not able to have children. And Mary was able to be pregnant without knowing her husband. This is the relationship between the two. God intervened in both instances. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. This is classic legal argumentation. The court of God ruled and made a statement that was codified, ratified, just like a man's will. And the statement said that righteousness was reckoned unto Abraham through his trust in my instruction. That's it. And he's saying that came 400 years before the scroll of the law within the narrative of the Torah. Why is it important to mention that period of four centuries? Because despite Abraham's trust, his children were in bondage in Egypt, which means that they didn't get the message, which means that they weren't really children of the promise, which means that the law was given because of the hardness of their hearts to crucify them, to set them free from bondage to Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. Moreover, when the law is given to Moses at Sinai, this doesn't say, okay, yeah, sure, Abraham was righteous because of his faith, but now you need to make sure you do all these things. What Paul is trying to do is he's trying to reconcile this idea that, oh, well, once the law came to Moses, the terms changed. Paul is saying the terms did not change. It's still by righteousness. Okay, well then, Paul, why all these other laws? The other laws are to emphasize what the covenant was with Abraham, Correct. that it's by God, and it's by God's grace that one enters into the lineage of God. He's saying not only can the law not contradict what was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness, but it has to pertain to what was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. It has to. Otherwise, God is not God. Because how could the court of God make a declaration and then he would go against it? So you didn't get the message. And so I, through my instruction, made every attempt to put you to shame so that you could be put to shame with Abraham to the point where you would do whatever I ask and it didn't work. And all these centuries later, you're still flexing your muscles, which is why the only hope for you is the one seed of Abraham's faith, which is Jesus Christ. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, meaning that you are transgressing the precedent set by God's court, and you are forfeiting the promise of the ruling of God's court. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. 
Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. This is what I was saying earlier, Richard. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So with Abraham, he was declared righteous and that he would be the father of many nations. This was the promise to God, not because of what Abraham did, just because of what God decided. And so it's not changing then once the law comes to Moses. If that's the case, then the promise that God granted to Abraham is no longer in effect. It's no longer because of Abraham's faith. What Paul is doing is he's trying to undermine this idea of following the law of Moses as superior to what happened with Abraham. He's showing that they are one and the same, that the law is because of the transgressions, because people didn't understand that it was by grace that Abraham was granted to be the father of many nations. And so the mediator here is Moses. When Moses passed the law along to the people, these are people who just left slavery. They just became a people. They were a brand new people. They were nothing before. And the father of many nations, that was to come. And it was only going to come once it was understood that this grace that was for the cursed would be open to all the Gentiles and not just to the Jews. And that's when the promise would be realized that Abraham was the father of many nations because of his faith didn't come about until this idea that the gospel is open to all the nations. And so in the meantime, in verse 19, Moses acts as this mediator who receives the deliberation from the court of God's angels, where God is the judge, which is handed down, deferring back to the original ruling about Abraham for the safekeeping of the people until the seed to whom the promise had been made would appear. The law, as Paul says elsewhere, was a custodian. But in its custodial function, it did what all parents do. Teach through judgment. Teach through practice. Teach through trial. And instead of achieving the lesson, you achieve the opposite lesson. And that's why now, when the seed has come, you're turning your backs on him. And here in verse 20, now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. So this is saying the the mediator before in verse 19 is that this is Moses. So Moses is not making a declaration. What he's saying is coming from the same source as everything else we've been talking about. Moses is not the reference. Right, Moses is not the reference. He's bringing about Torah, which is in the same line of what we were talking about with Abraham. It's not a break with what came before. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. We explain this. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But righteousness came first. It's all about hierarchy and order. There's the legal precedent of God declaring Abraham righteous. But beyond that, God is God. And he declared Abraham righteous. And that is the most important link in the whole chain. Well, and this answers the classic question that people are always asking and say, okay, well, fine. If the only way that we can be good is if God just declares us good, if there's nothing we can do, can we just do whatever we want then, Paul? Because evidently we don't have to do all this stuff that we're told we're supposed to do. If Peter can go and sit with whoever he wants, can he just murder whoever he wants? Can he just sleep with whoever he wants? Is that okay too? No, by no means. 
the law is not contrary to the promises of God. It's trying to show us that the only way you can receive righteousness is through God, not through something that you do. That's what it's trying to show. It's trying to show that your human efforts are not helpful. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the point that the story of the Bible consigns you to the shame of your sin so that you would realize you have no more moves left. You are out of oxygen. You are out of backup plans. This is it. You are completely at the mercy of God like our father Abraham walking hand in hand with his little son under orders to execute him. This is the cross. You're out of moves. Until you're out of moves, you don't need God. Only the dead are perfect. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. We mentioned this just a few minutes ago. Being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. So the law kept us under control, exposed our shame, even though we were too stubborn to really accept its judgment. It kept us in check just long enough to keep us as a community living in hope of the coming of the Messiah. The correct thing is to trust in God and that whatever anyone would do to us comes from the will of God, from the hand of God. But, you know, in case people don't understand this, you can say, you know what, just don't kill people. This is what the law is doing. It's trying to keep order when people don't understand the way things work. Because they're so self-righteous that they would feel justified in killing other people. They would feel justified in defrauding others in the community. They would feel justified in divorcing their wife because they're not happy with her. The law was there like a good parent to keep reminding you that you're just as bad as the others. So don't use it as your exercise routine to show that you're a better student than the others. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be, here in English it says justified, but it's the same word, dikaios. I'm very dubious of these translations. So I would read verse 24, so that we might be declared righteous or so that righteousness might be reckoned unto us by our trust. That's the key point in verse 24. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. Now through the cross, the shortcut has been opened up to you. The cross shows you the whole point was your own humiliation so that we could get down to the business of love, loving the neighbor, which is what God has been screaming for all these chapters even before Jesus. You need that law in order to evoke what is supposed to be evoked, which is that this is mercy. It's not just God had a crazy idea. I'm going to let you in. Really? Well, okay. I don't know what I'm getting into. Whatever. But the fact that you're in in spite of your shortcomings, that's what the law is needed for. Everyone has to become like Abraham and realize that they are in despite their shortcomings. And the fact that Jesus was put to shame even though he trusted perfectly should make you feel more ashamed. Because not only could you not achieve anything, but the one who could achieve lost everything and received the curse of the law. So what are you trying to prove, O foolish Galatians? For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And here in verse 26, Paul begins his attack on identity politics. 
Earlier he talked about how a law mitigates relations. Now we're going to start getting into the heart of the sin of the pillars, the sin of Jerusalem. Because you, once you believe that the one who is cursed is the Son of God, then who are you not going to sit with? Who is not your brother? Who can't you hold fellowship with if that's the case in verse 26? For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And here, please do not utter this blasphemous phrase, my identity in Christ. That is idolatry. There is no identity in Christ. The crucified Messiah is a non-identity. It's an anti-identity in Scripture. And the other people around you are clothed in Christ. You look upon them as the one who was crucified, who then was raised up as God's son. That's how you look upon people. Not whether I should sit with them or not, but that these are Christ. Verse 27 means you no longer have an identity. It's not about identity. It's about blindness and the erasure of identity. There is neither... Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I just want to add something to what you said a moment ago, that you no longer have an identity. There is no identity. But the flip side of that is that all the people around you do not have an identity either. You are not allowed to look at your neighbor and say, ah, that's a Gentile. Ah, that's a Jew. Ah, that's a slave. Ah, that's a free person. No. You say, oh, that's Christ. That's Christ. That's Christ. That's Christ. And when do you not sit next to the one who died for your sake, the one who allowed themselves to be under a curse for your sake. Which means you should walk around in shame, which is why I don't understand when people are frustrated when the sermon puts them to shame. Father Mark, you should talk to us like adults. We're all reasonable adults here. That's not what I read in Scripture. It doesn't say you're a reasonable adult. I haven't, I haven't read that part. I'm still looking for that <laughs> verse. What I read here is that Jesus puts you to shame and everyone around you puts you to shame, which means that when I'm preaching to you, I'm putting you to shame because that's the function of the whole system. And once we become too important or too adult to be put to shame, we can't enter the kingdom. As we said last week, only children are able to enter the kingdom because children are still open to discipline. In other words, preaching is not an intellectual exercise. It's a parental exercise. I joke around at work. If someone is acting up, you could always put their mother on the phone. And suddenly the conversation changes. Mother and father are universal functions. And they're useful in scripture because they're a tool of shame. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to his promise. This is how the promise is realized, the shame of the cross. So if you come and you want to be bolstered, empowered, praised, reinforced, lifted up. Or given a checklist of things to do. You'll feel great, but you won't be an heir of the promise through Abraham. Thanks very much, Richard. Thank you very much, Father. Have a great week. Thanks, you too. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.